Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Lynn Henning. Lynn covers the Tigers for the Detroit News. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Lynn underscore Henning. Lynn, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Happy to uh, talk with you today, Ross. Thanks. Well, Lynn, let's start at the beginning before we get into the Hall of Fame and your excellent piece. Let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. I grew up uh, on a farm in mid-Michigan, and uh, that will motivate you to do something else with your life very quickly. And uh, really, when I was 12, I uh, decided I wanted to be a sports writer. Uh, It was a case of loving the news and current events and sports and reading the paper every day. So I was naturally drawn to it and then got involved at uh, the high school level on the paper there where I was editor and then in college uh, as a sports editor. Uh, on to Michigan State, and um, suddenly you find out that uh, you're getting a significant amount of experience and meeting a lot of people, and even more fundamentally, that you love it. And so uh, that explains why uh, in 1974, when I graduated from Michigan State, uh, I went on and got my first job as a sports writer at the Battle Creek Inquirer, which was really a great first job. Then a year later, I went back to the Lansing State Journal, uh, where I'd worked part-time when I was at Michigan State, was there three and a half years during the Magic Johnson, uh, Kirk Gibson years, and then went to Detroit in 79 when I was 26. So uh, that's really been the story. So in 1976, was that your first year covering baseball? No, I suppose you might say it was opening day 75. Uh, that was the first time I legitimately was credentialed for the press box at Tiger Stadium. Uh, I was, what, 22. and um, that was uh, uh, really the beginning of it right there. And uh, it's continued now for, what will be 40 years uh, on this next opening day since I, I would have really been credentialed for the press box at my first big league game. Uh, of course, I'd been there in a host of ways otherwise, but uh, that was the first time I was uh, really admitted uh, to the press box. So I, I, certainly that's the day that professionally things began. A lot has changed, not just with sports journalism, but with media and journalism in general over the last 40 years. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen in terms of how the game is covered? Oh, certainly we all knew that uh, the day the Internet arrived, we were looking at the Industrial Revolution, and, and we have been. And it's been fantastic. For that reason, I really haven't minded the transition from print to electronics. Um, it's been easy for me. Uh, really rarely do I buy a paper. I, I get everything online. I, I find that to be uh, convenient. And of course, I like the timeliness factor. I think it serves the reader well, and, and it uh, is good, I think, on our end because uh, it moves us to be more effective uh, and to get the material out there more quickly. You don't have to wait hours and hours and hours for it to appear for the audience. And I like it. And even though it's made the business more difficult because no one is really uh, coming up with real solid ways for harnessing internet hits and converting them into resources that might better sustain the industry. I still uh, find it to be a, a very gratifying way to cover baseball. And I've covered everything through my years from Olympics to college football and basketball. I specialized in that for years to the Lions, NFL, NHL, you name it, uh, golf, I've covered everything through the years. But uh, there's been more of a concentration on baseball, more from a column niche uh, in recent years. And part of that is because Internet hits 
have shown my executives something we knew forever, that uh, baseball is 24-7, 365 days a year, and you really can't overcover it. And, and so in that respect, too, I think uh, the new era here has been very enlightening and very important. Let's talk about the Tigers for a little bit. They've been relatively quiet so far this offseason. They re-signed Victor Martinez. They let Torrey Hunter go. What are their plans for 2015? Right now, I think their plans are going to be to try to compete with three better teams because after the White Sox made their big trades for Samarjan and signed Robertson, uh, they're really a much better team and already had been getting that way. I think they're going to be exceedingly dangerous now. And then uh, already Cleveland and the Royals were established. If anything, uh, the Indians have certainly gotten uh, to be uh, a little stronger now that Brandon Moss is there. They've got excellent starting pitching. And the Royals, uh, even though uh, they've uh, lost Billy Butler and, and it looks as though they're going to trade some of their bullpen people, uh, I see no reason why, even with Shields moving on, that they're going to take any significant hits, so they're going to be good. And then uh, the Tigers, um, already now, uh, again, they're poised to lose Scherzer, and I think they probably will. I thought that long before he even turned down the $144 million, that he would certainly go to free agency with Scott Boris. We're seeing that play out. So this team is going to be challenged to be uh, as good as they've been here in winning four consecutive divisions. So the AL Central is now loaded. And uh, I don't know that the Tigers, as they're currently constructed, really can expect to win that division again. Uh, They're not done with their team or retooling their roster. The question is how much they can do because their payroll is already bumping up against the luxury tax altitudes. And that's going to constrict them somewhat, I think, uh, here in making any meaningful changes. But if they get their bullpen uh, repaired, and they may be in the process of that between uh, getting people healthier and and adding an arm or two, I I think they'll probably at least contend in the early parts of next season. You mentioned some of the moves by the AL Central teams, the White Sox and the Indians. Those teams are getting better. And for a while, the AL Central, at the beginning of the year, when people would make their predictions, when you'd look at rosters, it seemed like the Tigers, it was the Tigers and everyone else. And that's not the case now. At least it doesn't seem like it will be. Do you think the Tigers might make a panic move or make a move that they were otherwise not planning to make to try and uh, compete now with the White Sox and what, what the Indians are doing? They probably like their rotation, even without uh, having Scherzer, because Price and Porcellos, or Price and Porcello rather, and Anibal Sanchez uh, are, are certainly decent starters. Uh, you can, <laughs> to say the least, you can uh, plug into that mix now. Uh, Shane uh, Green, they got last week from the Yankees. I, I think they're going to be, uh, with, with Verlander, likely to have a little better season. There's nothing really wrong with their rotation. I don't know that it's the power front that uh, really is going to be advertised in Chicago or in Cleveland, particularly, or or potentially with the Royals. But uh, Detroit's pitching, which has always been the foundation for these guys winning their last four division titles, should be intact. Their their problem, as we all know, is their bullpen was so shoddy, and they're really going to need to uh, make sure that that thing is welded together. And they're probably going to have to do it without a guy like Joe Nathan, who might think has hit the wall and, and may not make the team out of Florida. Uh, they're making some moves toward that. They'll get Bruce Rondon back, who will be huge after Tommy John surgery. 
some things like that uh, could easily come together and give their bullpen the strength to, to really withstand uh, those starters going out after six or seven innings. But really, Ross, I th- think that's what you're talking about here. It's still pitching. The difference is Cleveland and Chicago now uh, really, I think, flaunt uh, a, a little bit better rotations right now than the Tigers do, and, and that tends to win. We've heard some rumors that they may be trying to trade some pitching. We've heard Rick Porcello, possibility of trading Porcello for a hitter, maybe like Ioana Cespedes. Do you see a trade or a move like that happening? No, I have not seen that trade at all. Other people have, and I've never understood it, because if they trade Porcello or Price, uh, they're back to needing another starting pitcher. And and I just I can't fathom that uh, the Red Sox or anybody would be willing to send to the Tigers uh, Cespedes as well as a starting pitcher uh, to supplant uh, uh, Price or Porcello um, for for one year of Price or Porcello because uh, those guys hit free agency next autumn and they're the only two people that really make sense for another team to to perhaps acquire uh, Sanchez. Uh, is locked in for a while. There's no no reason that Detroit would want to get rid of him. And so to me, it's never been plausible that they would trade this starter for an outfielder. Now, it can happen. It can be part of something creative. And uh, certainly Mike Illich and Scott Boris can do business again. And the Tigers might re-sign Scherzer as remote as I think that possibility would be. But uh, absent that, uh, there's no way that uh, Detroit, in my mind, can trade a starting pitcher. And I've never understood any of the conversation that would have them dealing a starter for Cespedes. It just, to me, does not uh, add up. Well, let's shift focus to the Hall of Fame. This would have been your 25th year as a Hall of Fame voter, but you chose not to submit a ballot this year. Tell me why. I have had a problem along with uh, just about everybody else the past couple of years and that we've had too many people. Uh, many of us have had too many people for the 10-person limit. And I find that to be unfortunate, unnecessary, and even I'll use the word stupid, because uh, if there are legitimate Hall of Fame candidates out there, they should be inducted, or at least should have a chance to be on the ballot, to have them restricted and pushed out and really discriminated against because of of an arbitrary 10-person limit to me is nonsense. And I had brought this up uh, aggressively with uh, the BBWA leadership uh, last January uh, in email letters and and saying, look, let's act now or we're going to have the same problem in December of 2014 that we've just uh, had to deal with now, which is tragic because a guy like Craig Biggio was kept out of the hall due to the 10-person limit. That's been confirmed. Other people would have had that vote down there if they'd been able to vote for more than 10. And so now we, of course, uh, have uh, newcomers to the list, uh, Smoltz and Randy Johnson and and um, Pedro yeah, and Pedro Martinez, of course. And, and all three of those guys, by the way, are on my ballot or would have been on my ballot. Well, that takes it up to 13. And uh, I find this to be a, a negative exercise. I had to leave Edgar Martinez off last year because I'd hit the 10 person limit. And uh, I'm tired of trying to push the rock uphill here for reasons that are absurd. And uh, the only way I could protest this with any vigor uh, or with any degree of conscience was to say, this year I'm not voting, and uh, to explain my reasons for that. So that's why I made that decision. 
And you're not the only one. Buster Only has made a similar decision or made the same decision based on similar reasons. But I want to backtrack just a little bit. When you said you emailed BBWAA leadership, what response did you get from them? Nothing. How's that for a response? And that uh, added to my ire. Uh, I didn't even get the courtesy of a returned uh, email. And um, even though they made some efforts toward that with the committee, uh, I wasn't uh, even uh, acknowledged in, in my very, very uh, comprehensive and, and quite extensive plea here uh, to get uh, some redress here on the rules. And so it was one more reason why I said, look, uh, th- this is preposterous. Uh, and today now, in a couple of hours, I think they're going to take this up at the meeting. Uh, but uh, it's it's just baffling to me that we can be so regressive and uh, so anachronistic uh, when simple progress could easily be realized here by eradicating a 10-man limit that once upon a time had its sensible place but no longer really is uh, – anything that should be considered is not uh, helpful when we have had an influx of worthy candidates who simply exceed that 10-person capacity. So you, you eliminate it, and you don't eliminate any integrity here. You're, you're, in fact, you're aiding integrity by allowing people deemed worthy to be placed on a ballot. And uh, it, it just uh, leaves me uh, flabbergasted that uh, this situation has had to reach a crisis stage Uh, before uh, any kind of reasonable adjustment seems possible. And one of the interesting things is, and we saw this from the Golden Era Veterans Committee ballot yesterday, no one got in, is that the reason why the BBWAA voting process exists and reason why all of these Veterans Committees exist is to put deserving players in, not to keep them out. But that's exactly what's happening now. It is, and I was uh, disappointed that uh, the committee yesterday couldn't find its way to, to either induct Dick Allen, uh, Tony Oliva, or Gil Hodges, or even Louis Tiant, uh, all of those guys, it just seems a shame that somebody's not there. Minnie Minoso deserved uh, deep consideration, if not uh, induction. Uh, it, it just leaves me a little bit uh, upset. I, I, I say that, though, Ross, believing that the Baseball Hall of Fame is the best of Hall of Fames because it is so difficult for people to get into it. But it shouldn't be prohibitively difficult. And that's really almost to the point where we've become uh, that kind of gatekeeper. We've become excessive, I believe. And it's going to have to be alleviated, certainly by expanding the limits so we can get worthy people like Biggio and company in there and and ease the logjam and ultimately get more people inducted who should be inducted. So it, it's it, it's not a matter of watering anything down. It's 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 making room here for worthy guests, and uh, we just seem to be uh, so so um, positioned against any kind of reform here that would make sense. Now, last year, the BBWAA announced that they were forming a committee, and this committee was going to be full of members, and they were going to offer suggestions to the Hall of Fame as to how to improve the voting process. Did that ever happen, and what suggestions were recommended? My understanding is they they may have their report today. My question is, why could their recommendations have not been made at the All-Star Game in time to influence this year's ballot? There's no reason why it should have taken all year. We can do this in in two hours, uh, sensible people. Uh, And uh, in tandem with that, I've been crying for more than a year 
for public disclosure of ballots. I always make mine known each year. I think that's part of the responsibility and the privilege of voting for the Hall of Fame. I've always made my uh, candidates known. And sure, I've taken some hits and a lot of flack, but if you can't handle that, you shouldn't be voting. It's not the same as an election day vote in a democracy for a governmental entity. That's a totally different sphere. This is baseball. And when you have the privilege of voting for the Hall of Fame, there is no reason why that ballot cannot be shared with the fan base who depends upon you for an intelligent vote. I agree with that completely. And when you look at rules or any laws or whatever you want to be, it's definitely not what we're, we care disproportionately about the Hall of Fame. This is not a general election. It's not electing a president or a governing body. Those ballots, should, of course, should remain private. But with this case, I look at what's being accomplished by keeping the writer's votes private. And I just don't know. I don't actually know what's being accomplished. I can see why the 10-player limit was in place at one point because they didn't want more than 10 players going in. But now there are more than 10 deserving players on the ballot. But I, I have no idea what's actually being accomplished by keeping it private. I can tell you in one word what's being accomplished. Comfort. Uh, a lot of people don't want the discomfort of either having their picks attacked by the public or ridiculed, or they don't want the discomfort of running into a particular player and having that player know that they didn't vote for them. And uh, this is, to me, um, cowardice. Uh, I, I had to deal with it all the time with Jack Morris, uh, whom I like immensely, and had always had a great relationship with him covering him in Detroit. And I've had beers with him at the bar, for Christ's sake. But Jack Morris, to me, felt just short of Hall of Fame worthiness. I couldn't put him on the ballot. It was a simple balls and strikes call. And I know he was uh, disturbed and probably hurt and wondered what he had done. No, no. But again, to me, if you have the privilege, Ross, of voting for the Hall of Fame, you have to make the tough calls. And uh, I have no problem in sharing uh, those votes with the public or in defending whom I picked or in explaining why I didn't select a particular person. I think that's part of a great conversation and dialogue with the public. And uh, I find it gratifying. But others, uh, frankly, cower from that kind of discussion. And if it's, that's the case with them, then I don't think they should probably have a vote. Well, I agree with that. And I think it's interesting because with the private votes, it almost says like the Hall of Fame itself is not confident in their voters. And for the right. voters that choose to keep their votes private, it says that they're almost not confident in their votes to make them public. So I just don't understand that one at all. I do wonder if there are other changes that could be made. One of the things that I think the Hall of Fame runs away from is accountability. They just ask voters to check out names of the people they think should be in. Shouldn't the ballots also be accompanied by something, a paragraph or two about why you're voting for or against a player? And that's a thought, and I think that that could be uh, introduced into the conversation. Uh, I, I think it it still comes down to based on the context of history and who's in there and the standards that have been set. You either find that person to be uh, rising to that particular expectation or not. Uh, but uh, what I think you would see, Ross, if you had public disclosure, is there would be a lot fewer careless ballots. Uh, in the instances where people were uh, playing a favorite or, or casting a vote against somebody they didn't like, I don't think those examples, by the way, exist uh, with any frequency. 
but certainly they have, and they, and they are part of it, uh, probably to a minuscule degree. But to guard against that probability or possibility, I think public disclosure of ballots would go a long, long way. And uh, furthermore, I think it would uh, enhance the credibility of the voting bloc uh, significantly to have light placed on their ballots. But uh, I seem to be talking to a wall uh, in in these instances. I I, I just get a little discouraged because, as you say, I think they're common sense reforms that should and could be adopted in a nanosecond. And instead, we find resistance continually, and then each year we, we confront the same issues here that really are needless. Do you find resistance from the Hall of Fame, from BBWAA leadership, or both? Both. And uh, anybody, uh, I think, familiar with these conversations knows you hear it uh, from one side or the other blaming the other. Uh, it, it's shared responsibility. Uh, it, the reform should be shared and could be shared. They're, again, not revolutionary. They're not radical. They're common sense. But uh, trying to get uh, people in baseball to do anything that's remotely progressive, uh, as we all know through the years, has not always been easy. And this is a terrible example of how frustrating, exasperating, and how really unnecessarily complicated uh, they've made things that should have been done long ago. Well, let's get into a more radical thing. These changes could really be done over the course of an email, and they could have been implemented this year. They could have been implemented last year. That's not nothing we're talking about so far is that difficult to imagine. But what if we talked about bigger changes, radical changes? Do you think that the BBWAA should still be voting for players to get into the Hall of Fame? Should they still have exclusive control over the voting? Realize that, realizing that no voting block is ever going to get it perfectly right, uh, I have no problem Uh, with uh, the BBWA still being the general custodians of the vote. I I think you're dealing here with a lot of people who have been studying this game extremely closely in a historical context. Uh, To have done so for 10 years uh, means you're steeped in the game um, with with a a real stake. And I think uh, the past results, Ross, of of Hall of Fame inductions has confirmed that this has been a very solid voting block. Uh, You're not going to get any other particular vested group, in my estimation, that's going to show uh, any more astuteness when it comes to getting people in. That's why the Hall of Fame is respected. But you are going to need to place a greater burden, again, on transparency, uh, certainly with the public disclosure of the ballots, and in dealing with uh, some of the silliness that uh, right now constrains a better vote, which would, of course, begin with this 10-person limit. If if you introduce those two reforms today, uh, you'd have a very good process here that would be far more universally respected and less universally indicted and criticized. And um, I only wish uh, that could come to fruition. Well, it's interesting because the question of, if not the BBWAA, then who? Who should be voting? What other group? And I don't think it has to come from a group, and I think that's part of the flaw. I think one of the things I dislike about the the voting group is that it's a 
it's become an entitlement that if you're a member for 10 years, you get a vote and it's automatic after that. I think that the voting year by year should be just that, that the voting group for the 2014 ballot may not be guaranteed for 2015. Obviously, you would have some overlap between voters. But I think an easy system is you have 100 people vote every year. Change that over by 10% every year. I don't think it needs to be just BBWAA members. I think there were play-by-play announcers, radio and TV personalities that do an excellent job, that do as much research and have as much appreciation for the history of the game that could easily be voting. I don't think it needs to be one group. I just want to get the best people voting. Some of those people are current voters and some of them are not. But I think we can streamline the process and make it a lot more efficient if we cut down some of the voters and add more qualified voters. I don't uh, disagree with that at all. Uh, My only question would be then, how would you determine that? And then how would you make it uh, anywhere ironclad against the very kinds of criticisms that that generally will will be attached to this membership too. So that that's that's the only question I would have there, Ross, is who would uh, have this power here uh, to arbitrarily uh, add another hundred or to or to weed out some of the current BBWA members. How, however, those lines would be drawn haven't really been explained to me. For that reason, uh, and again, based on the historical integrity of the Hall of Fame. Uh, I've had no problem with keeping the BBWA as its custodians. That may sound self-serving, but it's not going to be anything that can be sustained if they don't make these basic, basic changes and alterations that get rid of our weak links and turn those into strengths. And that, uh, as it stands today, is uh, restricting votes to 10 people and keeping too many of these votes uh, quiet, private and uh, away from scrutiny. I don't think that benefits anybody. And what about the character clause? Does that need to go as well? No, I I, I think it's there somewhat speciously. uh, Yes, it's a good thing to keep in mind. uh, B, it got shredded during the PED era. But uh, unfortunately, baseball was responsible for that because uh, baseball looked askance at a problem that uh, was pervasive. And my only problem with the PED situation is, again, trying to determine who did, who didn't. Uh, I've had to follow a different rule of thumb that I personally adopted. Uh, Those players whom I think were Hall of Fame caliber, even if they did uh, have dalliances with PEDs, uh, I've decided to vote for, uh, however much I find that distasteful. And and Roger Clemens and and Barry Bonds uh, qualify as uh, exhibits A and B. Those who I think might have gotten an artificial tip, let's say, into the altitude that would make them Hall of Fame worthy, um, like Mark McGuire, Rafael Palmero, Sammy Sosa, I've chosen quite arbitrarily to not put on the ballot because I'm not sure that their numbers minus PEDs uh, would have been a Hall of Fame caliber. Uh, That's the only way I've been able to sort this thing out that works for me. I I know it's subject to a lot of criticism, but that's the policy I've adopted, however flawed and imperfect it is, and it certainly is, but I haven't come up with a better answer. I think the PED guys should be in, but I understand the argument against them. What does bother me is that people like Piazza and Bagwell are being kept out on mere suspicion. What are your feelings on those two being kept out with no evidence against them? I agree with you completely. That's why Piazza... And uh, Bagwell and uh, company have have been on my ballot. That's why it's at 13, uh, because uh, of those particular guys, uh, I believe, are are Hall of Fame worthy. 
because, again, proving who did and who didn't at a point when it was so pervasive in the game and when uh, competitively guys felt as though they almost needed to uh, dabble in it to, uh, or, 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 or be uh, overwhelmed by those who were. It, w- it was a terrible bind in which baseball, uh, with its uh, head stuck in the sand, uh, allowed this system and this culture to really uh, uh, prosper. And, and so it, it, it makes it tough. It really does. And yet I've had to take all of those considerations uh, into mind here as I've tried to make out good ballots. And unfortunately, this year is not going to be sent in. When did you start, you've been covering the game for a long time, when did you start to see steroids and PEDs come into the game? I can tell you I was on that caravan in 1998 uh, with McGuire uh, as we chased his uh, pursuit of Roger Maris. And you can blame us for uh, being naive, but I really did not believe uh, at that point that McGuire was into it the way he clearly was. I didn't necessarily believe Sosa or Bonds were. Um, now, it, it didn't explain why there was a sudden proliferation of home runs on such a grandiose scale. I, I concede that entirely. But remember, we weren't, we weren't able to give uh, drug tests to these guys. And so you had to assume, uh, absent uh, medicine's greater qualifications for determining these things, that this was simply part of the evolution of the game. Um, certainly guys were getting a lot, lot stronger, and not just because of uh, PEDs, but because their workout routines had changed markedly and dramatically during those years, and they did. Uh, and so I, I, I think it was somewhat benign neglect, but there was really no way that you could, uh, again, uh, intrude upon intimacies or in privacies uh, to have found out that these guys were juicing the way they were. That had to have been something that science and medicine and doctors determined, and eventually that was the case. But uh, certainly Major League Baseball uh, at the executive levels should have been um, far more vigilant here, and, and, and they were not. And for that reason, we're paying a, a terrible price yet today for this. Do you see an ethical difference between the players of the 90s and 2000s that used steroids and the players in the 40s, 50s, and 60s that used amphetamines? Not really, and I think that's a great question because uh, amphetamines uh, probably did as much uh, as as PEDs. Uh, certainly, in the case of a lot of people that really, really, really uh, thrived off them, that that needed them on a daily basis, that were sustained by them, and I think that's a fine line distinction between uh, amphetamines and, and PEDs. I, I really agree with your question on that one, Ross, because I asked myself the same thing. But it does tell you that baseball was so far behind science on this. And, and again, the uh, damage it did to the game and to its integrity uh, was was monumental and is still being felt uh, here in extreme ways here years later. Yeah, and there was an interesting documentary released recently about Doc Ellis, who you know was famous for pitching the no-hitter while high on acid. But within that documentary, they talked about how he would say that players then were always trying to out-milligram the other players. It just wasn't with steroids because they weren't the drugs that were as readily available as amphetamines and other performance-enhancing drugs were at the time. Steroids might be more effective, but I think the idea of athletes using drugs to increase their performance has always existed. It has. And for that reason, again, you really rely on the medical field and the science fields 
to be as sophisticated in their applications to sports uh, as they are in, in other realms of life. And conversely, you need to have baseball uh, committed to always being in the vanguard on these issues so that we don't have another synthetic substance here uh, that is going to do uh, what PEDs and amphetamines did to the game uh, during this terrible period. But uh, that's the, the battle we fight here uh, with baseball. It, it's it's a gloriously old-fashioned game, and sometimes it gets uh, too steeped in its old-fashioned ways and resists the kind of progress that uh, really we all should be committed to. Since you wrote this article proclaiming why you're not planning on voting this year, the article's gotten a lot of attention on social networking sites. Has anyone from the Hall of Fame or the BBWAA contacted you about some of the points you made in it? You won't be surprised, Ross, to find out, no, <laughs> there hasn't been one phone call from any of those people. I've, I've had uh, radio stations call, um, and, and really, that's about it. Uh, and I'm, I'm a little bothered by that, too. It, it, uh, it's, it's, it's almost like uh, everybody runs for cover on this stuff. And um, I just think it should be so m- much more energetically discussed uh, otherwise, we find ourselves uh, continually in, in this wheel-spinning stage that we were, as the BBWA uh, body would certainly uh, attest, the past year. Again, why did it take so long to make a simple accommodation here to the fact we knew there were going to be even more names that were going to be worthy of Hall of Fame consideration and couldn't get on the ballot this year? Why count this situation any further? And yet they have. It, it, it leaves me so utterly disturbed. If there are no changes made next year, if the system remains exactly intact and exactly in place as it has been for many years, will you not vote next year as well? You have it right. Until I see some meaningful common sense progress, I am not making out a ballot. Uh, this is a grotesque and, and, and perverse exercise to have to screen worthy people from a ballot. I'm not going to participate in in that kind of backwards, uh, that kind of dark ages exercise. It just makes no sense. You've been listening to Lynn Henning. Lynn covers the Tigers for the Detroit News. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Lynn underscore Henning. Lynn, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Okay, Ross. Good talking with you.